We started talking several weeks ago about uh, a verse of Scripture. I'm not going to have you turn there because I do want to get into some other things. Turn with me right now to Matthew chapter 6. The very end of the book of 1 John where he talks about difficult times that we're living in. And of course we live in more difficult times today than we lived in he did in some ways. Talks about the fact that the world's under the sway of the evil one. And that's very obvious today. But he says the answer is that in that we are to know him and that he came to reveal who he is. And if there's anything we need right now, if there's anything the church needs, or if there's anything that we individually need right now, is to know him better than we've ever known him before, to draw closer to him. Because we are already in a period, and I just read some verses to you a few minutes ago, we are already in a, ver- in a period of the history of the church that, the, that God has said about it, many will be deceived. We're talking about the elect. We're not talking the world. They are deceived. But there are people in the church that are going to be deceived because they're not going to recognize what the spiritual realities are. And his disciples, aware of some of this, came to him and said, Lord, well, what are the signs of the time? How are we going to know that? And he talked about some things that were going to come that were not good things. But God is faithful. If you look and study the Bible, he's always faithfully led his people through difficult times. He loves us. He's not going to just put us here to go through terrible times and suffer and, and, and just leave us and have us be destroyed. No, he's got us here for a purpose. And he's going to lead us and guide us. But to do that, we've got to draw closer to him. We've got to know the voice of his spirit. We've got to know his spirit more than we ever have before. And I want to encourage you. I don't usually do this, but I really sense an urgency this morning to encourage you to be here on Wednesday nights because I'm teaching on the difference between spirit, soul, and body. And if you don't know what those differences are, you will most likely end up being deceived because your body and your soul can, can imitate your spirit very easily. And it's learning what that difference is. And that's what's going to be the key in the day, time we're in right now. But the interesting thing is that section of Scripture that ends 1 John ends with this verse that says, therefore, therefore, you should leave alone idols. You know, let go of idols in your life. And I share with you, it's kind of a strange ending. He doesn't talk about idols really anywhere else in any detail in that letter. And now he's talking about knowing him, and he ends by saying, put away idols. And I really believe that God began to talk to me about, it's talk about idols. Because what an idol will do is an idol will keep you from knowing him. And we're going to see very clear examples of that before we finish this series. So we've started out by saying, and then we go into Exodus chapter 20, and in Exodus 20, of course, is the Ten Commandments. The people of Israel have come out to the base of the mountain to meet their God, and when God came down and showed himself on the mountain, they ran away in fear because they didn't know what he was like. And Moses drew closer, and God calls Moses up on the mountain and hands to him what we call the Ten Commandments, not suggestions, not, not, not policies, the Ten commandments. The first one, and we've never gotten past this one, the first one is, I am the Lord God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. The next verse says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. We talked about the fact that that's the essence of idolatry. Idolatry is when you make your own God 
whatever form that may be in. It can be something physical, but we're going to see today it can be something emotional, it can be something mental, and we're going to see before we're in, it can be something spiritual. A God is anything you've made yourself to be your source of your identity, your source of your provision, your source of your well-being, your source of your security, your source of anything that's, that you need in your life. If it's something other than God, that's an idol because it's something you've made. We went and looked. Very clear example. He says, you shall therefore, because of this, you shall not perform any offers of sacrifice to me on anything that you've made. He said, you can, you're only authorized to perform it on the ground, the dirt. Why? Because God made that. And you can use stone as long as you don't put, a, put, a, put a, a, a hammer or a chisel to that stone. Because the moment you do something to that stone, you've now added your own input to what that thing's like. And we're going to see before the end of this study, that's going to become very significant to us. And we've looked at what kind of idols we can have in our life. We saw, you know, the obvious, there are obvious ones. There's little statues you can have in your house, you know, or you can have on your dashboard. See, that's an idol. It's just a piece of plastic. Then why do you have it there? It's something someone's made, and it was designed so that if I have that on my dashboard, somebody's going to watch over me and protect me other than Jehovah God. So it's something I've made or I've put there and I'm putting my trust for my protection in that thing or what that thing represents. That is idolatry. But that's an obvious form of idolatry, hopefully. There can be other types of idol. It can be your car. It can be something, you know, you just, oh boy, you know, and nobody can touch this thing. It's like, you know, it can be anything that you've put, you've invested your sense of, of well-being and your identity in that thing. Those are the obvious things. But last week we began to look at idols that I call hidden idols. And we'll see a story later on in, in, um, uh, uh, in, in Joshua where they enter into the promised land and, and, and the first city they conquer is Jericho and the commandment they're given is they're not to touch anything that's in that city. And there's a man named Achan who does. He takes a, a, a Babylonian robe and some pieces of gold and hides them away in his tent. And the next time Israel goes into battle, they're terribly defeated by a much smaller army than Jericho had. And Joshua goes and cries out to God and said, why? He said, because somebody has taken a profane thing from the city of Jericho they were commanded not to take. And he goes and through the, the revelation of the Spirit of God is revealed where that thing is. And the point is that one idol that was taken caused the entire nation to be defeated in battle. And we'll talk about that. So the one we looked at last week is in Matthew chapter 6, and we're not going to spend much time there because I want to go on to something that's even more. Each one of these types of idols we're going to talk about is a little more subtle and not so easy to recognize, but the more subtle they are, the more dangerous they are. So the most obvious ones are things on your dashboard, a little statue in your backyard, Pastor Sam used to say, an upright bathtub. <laughs> Those are the obvious ones. But it's idolatry. It's worshiping something other than Jehovah God. And it's something some man has made. But in Matthew 6, we see a very interesting discussion. And I'm not going to go through all of this, but he says in verse 19, Therefore, do not lay up for yourself treasures or idols. Therefore, do not lay up for your treasures on earth 
A treasure is something you've invested your caring about, your heart into, where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor, uh, nor rust destroys, where thieves cannot break in and steal. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. That's the key to this discussion. Goes on and says, You can't serve two masters. You can either serve God, either, or either God's your God, or something else is your God, but you can't serve two things. Now, understand this God says that's impossible. You may think you can handle it, but God says it's not possible. So if you disagree with Him, one of you's wrong. And I'll tell you who the odds are on. <laughs> God says it is not possible to serve Him and something else at the same time, whatever it may be. Then he goes into this discussion in verse 25, which we talked about at the end. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, as to what the talk, which is the issues of life, what you're going to wear and what you're going to eat. Take no thought about it. That doesn't mean you don't plan. That doesn't mean you don't have a budget. That don't, that, that's not what he means by take no thought. He, means, he says later on, therefore I say unto you, do not worry. So this, this idol we talked about last week is worry. But I thought it's natural to worry. It's sin to a Christian. Because worry says, I need this thing more than I need God. Which means this thing, whether it's my clothes, my car, whatever it is, I've now put as a place of importance in my heart above God. See, the issue's not the things. God doesn't care if you have things. He just doesn't want things having you. The issue here is your heart. Because he says where your heart is, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is also. And we worship God out of our heart. And the place of idolatry, all these places of idolatry are positions in your heart of prominence. And God demands to be first in your heart and has a right to demand that because he created you. Not only did he create you, he bought you back. We just saw a a, a drama of that. So he owned you twice. First because he made you. Second because he bought you back out of sin. He's your father. He loves you. And Jesus said, the first and great commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your might, and with all your mind. And that's the position God must be in. But not only that, we're going to see before the end of the study, that's also the place of blessing. Because God wants to do things in your life. He wants to provide for you, protect you. He wants to lead you and guide you. He wants to bless you beyond what you can begin to imagine. But He cannot do it if things are out of order in your life. And I'm talking about within the attitudes of your heart. If He's not first, He cannot bless you that way because it would be dangerous. History's shown us that as a result of the lottery, most of the people that win these huge lotteries, it destroys their lives. Why? Because it's like taking something that's going, you know, you've got some control of barely, and now you put it up at another level of another speed. It's like when you put a rug in the, in the, in the washing machine, and it all gets on one side. Well, when it's in, the, in, in that cycle where, you know, it's swishing back and forth, that's not a real problem. But then it goes into the spin cycle where things start going faster and faster and faster. Now if it's out of balance, it creates a real problem. That thing will walk across the floor at you. 
And the same is true spiritually and the same is true with your life. It's when he gets first in your heart. And the proof of it is when you go down to verse 33, Jesus says, you know, don't you understand? Look at how God takes care of the birds. It's beautiful this time of year. The birds are out. You can hear their singing. They're not worried. You don't hear them. Oh, what are we going to eat? I don't know what we're going to do. Oh, my goodness. What are we we got to get a prayer meeting together. I don't know what we're going to do. They're chirping. They're looking for food and chirping. They've got confidence God's going to provide for them. they got more confidence than most Christians do. They've got a song in their heart every morning. And Jesus goes on to say, Don't you think you're of a little more value to God than the birds? Look at the lilies of the field. They grow up today, and tomorrow they're gone. They're thrown into the furnace. He says, and, and, and the beauty of them is more beautiful than all the glory that Solomon had. Don't you think you're more valuable than a sunflower or a stalk of wheat? Therefore, he says, I say unto you, seek ye first. Verse 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, all these things you need will be added unto you. But the confidence they're going to be added unto you is when you know he's first. So when we're worrying, when we're worrying, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? When we lose our peace and we lose our joy over things, then those things have taken a place in our heart above God. I've known people, well, we've gone on the mission field among these beautiful Mayan Indians in southern Mexico who if they had a tenth of what you had would be rich in their community. And they're some of the happiest people I've ever known. They're not happy because of what they have or don't have. They're happy because of their relationship with God. And all these things often get in our way. Why? Because we think we need them more than we need Him. And they become idols in our lives. But we're going to look at another one this morning. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. So we've seen one of the hidden idols are the things of this life that we need so much that we worry about them, whether we're going to have them or not, and don't trust that our God is going to provide them for us. Genesis 22 is a very powerful story, and it's about Abraham being told by God to offer up Isaac, his son. We're going to start with the first few words, and then I want to give you some background here. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. Now I want to go back and show you what some of these things that says after some of these things. And I want to go back and talk about what some of these things are because they're important to understand when it comes to what this test really is. Because at some point in your life, you're going to face a similar test if you have not faced it already and you may face it more than once. And the test is to find out who is who is king in your heart? So I'm going to go back. You don't need to go back with me, but if you go, were to go back and look at chapter 15, God's first encounter with Abram is in chapter 12. Abram lives in a place called, well, it's basically where Babylon is. It's Babylon, the old Babylon. It's where Iraq and Iran are today. And, and, and 
Abraham comes from a people that are moon worshipers. And God speaks to him and tells him to leave where he is and to come to a land he's going to tell him when he gets there. I've often imagined, imagine going home and telling your wife, we're moving. Where, dear? I don't know. We're moving. Why? God told me. You mean the moon spoke to you? No, the real God. Oh, right. <laughs> but he obeyed. The interesting because verse 30 of chapter 11 says, but Sarai, was, that was his wife, was barren and had no children. So f- chapter 12 is when God says, I will bless you. And I will bless those that bless you, and I will curse those that curse you. The next encounter that Abraham has with him in the Bible is over in chapter 15, verse 2, we're going to look at. God has appeared to him in a vision, and this is much later. And Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing that I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? Because the practice in those days is if you did not produce a male heir, out of your own bodies with your spouse that you could choose one of your servants to take your, to, 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 and adopt them as a child. That's what he's referring to here. But he wants a natural heir. Verse 3, Abram said, Look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, the one born of my house, that's Eliezer, is my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who shall come from your own body shall be your heir. And he brought him out and showed him all the stars and said, this is what, this is what you, the number of your offspring is going to be like the number of the stars in heaven. And at this point, Abraham didn't even have one. Chapter 16 is the next encounter that he has. Now, when God first appeared to Abram, he was 75 years old. Now what we're going to see is 10 years later, he's 85 years old here. Verse chapter 16, Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See, God hasn't come through yet on their timetable. God made a promise to them, but they haven't seen any results yet, so what they're about to do is take things into their own hands. So Sarah's wife comes up with this idea, and it was not foreign in those days. It was part of their practice if they had no heirs. So Sarah said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid, and, I, and, she sh- and you shall have changed children by her. Look at this. And Abraham listened to the voice of his wife. <laughs> yes, dear. Whatever you say, dear. Then Sarai, Abraham's wife, took Sagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife. That doesn't mean they were married. And after Abram had dwelt... Ten years in the land of Canaan. So this is ten years later after God's made this promise to him. He's now 85 years old, doesn't see anything yet. And what happens is, so they've come up with this scheme. All right, God wants us to have a child. I don't see God doing anything to fulfill his promise. So what we'll do is we'll help him out. This was a practice that was not foreign in those days. So we'll use this practice. I'll give you my maiden to treat her as if you're my wife. And if she produces a child for you, we'll consider that child your heir because he will have come from your body. And that's what happens. She conceives, and a child named Ishmael is born. And we're still dealing with Ishmael today. Verse 3, Then Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to his wife. And Abraham had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. So 
He went into Hagar, she conceived, and when she saw that she conceived, her, her mistress became despised in her, in her eyes. So the servant's now looking down on, her, on Sarai, who she's supposed to be serving. Okay, now let's go over to chapter 17. When Abraham's 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him. Now that's another, what? 14 years. Abraham appeared. Now nothing's happened. 90. We're, we're now 24 years after the promise has been made. This is part of after these things. It's important to understand what Abraham goes through in verse 22 if you don't understand the background here. God came to him and said, I am going to enter basically into a covenant with you. Abraham's answer is, what do I get out of this? And what I want is an heir. I don't have a male heir because my wife's been barren. And God says, come here. And he shows him all the stars and says, your descendants are going to be more numerous than the stars of the heaven. And all Abraham can think is, I don't even have a son yet. And then God appears to him later and reiterates the promise. Appears to Sarai and iterates the promise. And she looks around and says, nothing's happening 10 years later. You know, after 10 years, you could get discouraged. After 10 years, you could want to take things into your own hands, and that's what they do. And now Ishmael is born to them. And now 14 years later, 24 years after the promise, God comes to Abraham. Again. And appeared before him and says, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless and I will make a covenant between you and me and multiply you exceedingly. And Abraham fell on his face and God talked with him saying, as for me, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of many nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but you shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations and I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make nations out of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your generations after you for an everlasting covenant to be your God and your descendants after you. Verse 15. Then God said to Abraham, As for your wife Sarai, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be your name, and I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she will be the mother of nations, and kings of people shall come from her. And Abraham fell on his face and said, Praise God, I've been trusting you and believing you all this time. That's not what it says, is it? And Abraham fell on his face and laughed. He laughed at God's promise. He's not reading the Bible and laughing. God's speaking to him and he's laughing. Shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old and Sarah, who's 99 years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Oh, he, God says, From this woman who's barren, I'm going to produce that child I promised you. And Abraham laughs in his face and says, From this old body you're going to do it? And from her? Oh, God, come here. Ishmael, come here. Come here, boy. See, God, see what we did? We did it for you. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. An Ishmael is any time you took a promise of God and you put your own effort into making it come about. An Ishmael is when you take a promise of God 
And instead of waiting for him to do it, you figured out how to help him out and you've helped him somehow. You've added you to his promise. And we're still living, as I said, with Ishmael and his descendants. All the tension in the Middle East comes from the tension between Ishmael and the child that's going to be born, Isaac. And that's the root of the battle today. All right, let's go on. So let's see what God says. See if God says, Abraham, that was a great idea. I wish I'd thought of it. That was a lot easier than what I'm going to do. No. God says in verse 19, then God says, no. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant with his descendants after him. In other words, no, Abraham, it's going to be the way I said it. It's going to be this simple. I made a promise to you, and you believe my promise. That's it. Not I made a promise to you, and you helped me out. You added some of your good ideas to it. I made a promise to you, and all you have to do is believe it, and I will perform it. See, at this point, see, people say, why did it take so long? He's still not in faith. He still doesn't believe this promise is going to come about. He's still trying to help God. He just laughed at him. Chapter 18. Excuse me. Uh, yeah, chapter 18. Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees. And as he was sitting at the door of the tent. Let's go down to verse 9. God appears as, as three beings at this place. Verse 9. Then they said to him, Where is Sarai your wife? So he said, well, she's here in the tent. And he said, well, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. In other words, the normal time for the carrying of a child. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. In other words, I'll be back in nine months, and you'll have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the tent of the door behind him. And Abraham and Sarah were old and advanced in age. And Sarah had passed the age of childbearing, and she was already barren to boot. Then therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I've grown old, shall I have pleasure of my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why does Sarah your wife laugh? Surely I shall bear a child, saying, Surely I shall be a child if I'm, since I'm so old. Look at verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? That's the question that's being asked today of you. Is anything too hard? For the Lord. See, that was the issue in Matthew chapter 6. That's why we worry. Because we think taking care of our needs is going to be too hard for the Lord. We think, well, you know, God, if I don't have this amount of money by this time, I'm going to lose the house. This is going to happen. Do we think that's too hard for the Lord? I've told this example before in school of ministry and a few times here. This is how faith is intended to work. God says something, and then we have a role to play. We are to believe what he says. So let's just take this hypothetical example. God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to walk to the end of the pier and get in the boat that will be there and go to the other side. God says, you go to the end, and I'll make sure there's a boat there for you to go to the other side. 
So what do we do? We come out to the edge of the pier. The first thing we do when we get out on the pier is what? We look at the end of the boat pier to see if there's a boat there, and there's no boat there. What are we going to do? But God says when you get to the end of the pier, there'll be a boat there. Get in it and go to the other side. So we start walking, but we walk slowly because we want to give God time to get a boat there. And while we're walking slowly, our eyes are scanning the horizon to see if any kind of boat is showing up. And if it's not, we're going to give, we're already thinking of alternative plans. In other words, we're thinking of Ishmael's. How can I help God carry out what God said to do? But all God requires is that we believe Him and act as if we believe Him. See, the God who said, when you get to the end of the pier, there'll be a boat there, He's capable of extending the pier. He's God. I mean, is it hard for God to extend a pier when He created the universe with His words? Why is a few more feet on a pier more difficult than God than hanging the stars in the sky and holding them there, the Bible says, by the, power of his, by the word of His power? Well, suppose he just doesn't decide to extend the pier. Suppose the boat just pops up there. Do you think he could do that? How do you think the stars got into heaven? The Big Bang Theory. God popped them there. <laughs> That's the bang. Suppose the boat doesn't appear there just yet. We're supposed to keep walking. Do you think God could have us walk on water? He's done it before. Not just Jesus, but a man walked on water with him, Peter. See, how the boat gets there is his business. When the boat gets there is his business. My responsibility is to walk until the boat gets there. And that's what's going on here. Now Abraham gets it. Twenty-one, chapter twenty-one. And the Lord visited Sarah as He had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as He had spoken. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time set which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, who Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight years old, eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old. God first came to him when he was 75. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him, and Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and all who hear me will laugh also. Isaac means laughter. And she also said, who would have said in verse 7 to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, for I had borne him a son in his old age. Now the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. Now I go back to chapter 22. Because it starts with the words, now it came to pass after these things. We've just looked at what these things were that chapter 22 came after. And the reason I took the time to go back over those is what God's going to ask Abraham to do, I wanted you to have the background of what he had to go through to have it, Isaac. 
He had to learn to walk by faith for 25 years. He had to trust God and battle his thoughts and battle looking at his body and battle looking at her body and battle what people said and battle all this stuff for 25 years. He had some up days and down days. He had times when he was trusting God and others when he fell flat on his face. And now, 25 years later, he sees God's promise given to him. God had made clear to him That's the boy I want you to have. Because Abraham tried by something else, another means. He presented his own work to God, and God says, no, it's going to be done my way by this child being born of Sarah that you're going to trust me for. And now he's done it after getting things messed up, getting things that weren't straight. Now he's got it straight. He's done it right. He now has this child. The child's grown. He's now been weaned. And now when we see him, he's an adult young man. I want you to see all that Abraham had to put of his own faith into this son, he was now his pride and joy. And now the same God, the same voice that he's heard before, that he heard over those 25 years speaking to him, reiterating, it's through this young man, this boy, you're going to be the father of many nations. He knows this voice. And now this same voice speaks to him again. Verse 2, verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that the Lord, that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. Now what do you want to bless me with? Verse 2. He said, take now, take now your son, your only son, That word only son in Hebrew is yakid, which means a very precious one. Someone is very precious that has come from you and it is is your highest treasure. Take your only son Isaac, whom you love with all your heart, and go to the land of Moriah, yes Lord, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall tell you. Wow. But God, what were these last, I don't know, 50 years? However, if he's 25 years old, we're talking about 50 years. What are these last 50 years about? What was all those times? I wanted to do something all the way, and you said, no, it's this son, and you're going to be the father of many nations through this son. Remember when you took me out and showed me the stars of the heavens? And says, you know, through this boy, that's what your descendants are going to be. What about all that, God? Oh, you know what? Maybe this isn't God. Maybe it's the devil. It must be the devil. Because it's not consistent with what God's already promised me. So it's got to be the devil. Get behind me. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. Look at the next verse. This is so telling to me. So Abraham rose early in the morning. I remember as a kid, if we were going to go on some hiking trip or something that was fun, we got up early in the morning. But if it was a day to rake leaves in the yard, we had to be hauled out of bed. You know, somehow what you're going to do that day makes a difference in your attitude when you get up. Oh, boy, it's our first day of vacation. You know, you want to sleep in late. You just can't because you're so excited. The first day, you know, your first day back at work. Oh, the alarm was hit it again. Hit it again. Wow. 
Abraham, knowing he's been commanded to take his only son, whom he loves, and sacrifice him to God, gets up early in the morning and leaves early. This indication of his heart, that's what we're talking about. It's a window into his heart. He rose early in the morning, chapter verse 3, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. He split the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. By the way, this place is, is a range of mountains called Moriah, which just happens to be located right outside of Jerusalem because it's in this same range that thousands of years later, another only son is going to be carrying on his back the wood of the sacrifice up the same mountain for the same offering. That's a study for another day. Verse 5, And on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place far off. And look at verse, verse 4. Verse 5, And Abraham said, what you say is so important, to his young men, stay here with a donkey. The lad and I will go yonder. Shows he was a southerner. We'll go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. And we will come back to you. He didn't know how that was going to happen. If you were to go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19, what you find is, it says, Abraham believed that if necessary, God would raise him from the dead because he has not let go of that promise. God drilled that into him. So he hasn't let go of the promise. He's just obeying. He's, he's leaving it to God to work out this inconsistency. He says, God, all I'm going to do is obey you. I don't understand why. This doesn't make any sense to me. I just know that if you've got to raise him from the dead, whatever you've got to, because that promise is going to be fulfilled, that much of the message I got. It says in Hebrews, from which he received him back from the dead is a type, just as God the Father received his son Jesus back from the dead. So he says, the lad and I are going to go. We're going to worship God, and we will come back to you. He doesn't know how that's going to happen. He's not trying to figure it out. He's just obeying God and trusting him with everything that matters to him. He's trusting him first. And that's what the test is. That's what says God tested Abraham. That's what he's testing. And we'll show you that in a moment. Verse 6, so Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and set it, laid it on Isaac, his son, and took the fire in his hand. It was, the, it was a, a censer that carried a coal. And knife, the knife, and the two of them went on together. But Isaac's beginning to take inventory here. In verse 7, Isaac's trying to figure this out. And Isaac said to, his, to Abraham, his father, my father, he said, here I am, son. He said, I see the wood, and I see the fire, but it seems to me there's something missing. Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Notice what comes out of Abraham's mouth. Notice what doesn't come out. 
I don't understand what God's doing here. He's making me pay a price. I can't believe I have to make that. I've served God all my life. I've done the best I can. And now God's asking this. It's not fair for him. Notice that's not what he says at all. He doesn't complain. He doesn't explain. All he does is speak words of faith because God has finally taught him this. And he says, my son, God will provide for himself the sacrifice. As I understand it, literally in the Hebrew, it says God will provide himself. In other words, God, listen to me. This is what he's saying. I don't understand. I just know God's going to provide. Remember what an idol is. An idol is anything you build into your life to be your source other than God. And here Abraham's heart is being tested. And Abraham's saying, I don't understand where this is, how this is going to work out. I just know God's going to work this out. I know somehow God's going to provide, whether it's to raise you up again. He didn't say this, but this is in his mind. Whether it's to raise you, somehow God's going to provide this. And you and I are coming back down this mountain together. How that happens is up to God to work out. My responsibility is to keep God first in my heart and trust him above everything else. What's amazing in this story also is the trust of Isaac because he's not a four-year-old. He's probably a 24-year-old. Abraham, verse 8, said, My God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went on together. They came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order and bound up Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar. Boy, what obedience that son had. What trust that son had to have in his father's faith in his God. Somewhere that father had communicated to his son his faith. And Abraham, verse 10, stretched out his hand and took the knife with the full intention of slaying him. And I believe it as his hand was beginning to come down, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Verse 12, he said, do not lay your hand upon the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear or reverence God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. What is this test about? What is this idol we're talking about tonight, today? One of the more subtle idols is when God has given you something. It can be, in this case, a son. It's often children. It can be a spouse. It can be a parent. It can be a friendship. It can be any human relationship. And we build into our life a greater need for that person or relationship than we do for God who gave them to us. See, what God is asking for back from Abraham is something that God gave to Abraham that has become precious to him. And God's saying, I want that back because I want to know that I'm, more, I'm first in your heart more than the gift that I have given to you. God must be first. It can be a child. Notice, it was God's will for him to have this child. 
Because Abraham fought it and argued with it and didn't think it was going to happen. God, that's why I went back through all this history. God had to convince him, this is what I want. So we're talking about something that's God's will for him. It's part of God's plan and God's destiny for Israel is to have this son. And God has made it as clear as he could be. It's this boy, not someone else. But I've got to know that even though this boy is my will for you and he is crucial to the plan that I have for this people that I want to form, I've got to know that he's not more important to you than I am. But if so, if so, he's become an idol to you and I want it back. This type of idol is anything that God has given to you that's good and that's his will for you that you allow to become more important to you than him. Again, one of the biggest ones are children. Jesus said to his disciples at one point, don't think I came to bring peace. I came with a sword. I didn't mean he was trying to destroy people. He said, I'm going to force decisions to be made in families that are going to divide some families. And some of you sitting here have experienced that because you chose to give your life to Christ and leave the church you were raised in and have come here and to follow him, it's created division in your family. And some of you have been persecuted. Some of you have been ostracized and kicked out of your family because of that. But you're here because you chose to put him first above those that you truly do love. But you've demonstrated that you love him more. And they don't understand it, but he does. So it can be children. Children are one of, you know, we're at a stage where we've had our children leave home and, you know, if they're at eight, and it's hard to leave home, hard to let go of them. But just because they're out of your house doesn't mean you're not involved in their lives anymore. And it's wrestling, you know, at what point do I stop being their source and let them get to know God and see God as their source? I had to go through that. The relationship I have with God is because I, we went through some very difficult things at times that were in many cases things I got us into, but I watched God and I got us, God got us out as I trusted Him and followed His voice. I can't rob my children of that opportunity by always stepping in and bailing them out. There's a time there's things for us to do, but there's a time when you've got to let them go into God's hands and let God, otherwise you're their God. And they're your idol. But it's not just children, or it can be spouses. It's not just relationships. It's anything God has given you that's part of his purpose for your life. One of the biggest ones I had to deal with was ministry. I've dealt with many ministers that God has given an anointing to, gifting to, and then he'll say, I want it back. I want you to set it down. I had to go through that. I went through a period of time when God would have me preach. I mean, when I preach, I know I'm doing what I was made to do. I could tell when I practiced law, I was doing something I learned to do. But the first time I stepped in a pulpit, I said, whoa, what's this? This is natural to me. I don't have to plan work. It, it just comes, something comes out of me. I, I, I don't know what this is. And I began to realize this, is, this was a gift God had given to me. This was what my purpose of my life. Now, where he was going to apply it, I didn't know. But it was like this. And then he would have me sit down. When I first came here, so I'd been a pastor of a small church before. And one of the reasons God had me step out of that is I hadn't worked this out yet. I was getting my value and my sense of well-being 
from the response I was getting from people. So I could have preached the most powerful sermon I've ever preached in my life, and if, some, if everybody didn't come up to me, oh, that was the greatest thing I ever heard, I'd go home devastated. Or I could have 10 people come up and say, oh, that was wonderful, and the last person said, you know, it was okay. And I would go home, and I would be upset about it. Why? Because that gift and that calling had become my identity. And if it was threatened from any source, then, then I was threatened. And God had to literally pull me out of the ministry, sit me down in one of these blue chairs. For four years I sat here and never opened my mouth in any teaching role at all. And I'd sit there and I'd listen to people's teach and it's like, you know, there's a better way to do that. I wasn't judging. I'm just saying, I could sense in me, oh, you ought to do this. And you got this. God would say, you sit here and keep quiet because there's something I've got to get out of you. And then after four years, I started teaching new members class, and then God, then I would teach something and sit down. And there was one point where Pastor Sam, the founder, sent me to pastor a church we were working with for six months, and the juices were going again, and he pulled me back, and then he sit in a blue chair for a while. I said, what is this all about? <laughs> and then finally, he said to me one day, Pastor Sam did, he says, you know, I don't think you were ever called. That devastated me. If anybody else had said that to me, I would have said, well, you don't know what you're talking about. But those of you who knew him knew he had a way. When you said something, you know it was the truth, and it cut right through. And I remember, so, I mean, I left the law practice. I'd moved my family halfway across the country. I mean, 10 years I devoted to ministry, and now you're telling me I was never called? And I know right where I was driving home from my, uh, the law job that, that I then went back into. And God spoke to me and says to me, son, what if I didn't call you? Do you want it anyway? And suddenly I saw the issue. The issue was I knew God had called me, but I wanted it too. So I was mixing what I wanted with what God wanted. And that profaned it. It's like taking that stone and I add something to it. And I said back to God out of my heart, I don't want anything you don't give me. And I let it go. And I felt 15 years of pressure lift off of me. And isn't it interesting, it was only a few years later that the man that told me that I wasn't called asked me to lunch and asked me to come on staff as a minister here. But I am absolutely convinced that I could not stand in this role today if God had not taken out of me my own ambition in ministry. Because out of my own insecurity at the time, I needed people's approval because I needed, and so the ministry was an avenue through which I would get that. And God had to, have, had to put me in a place where I would lay that down so that he could turn, see, because he turns and gives Isaac back to him. But it's clear now, again, Isaac is God's gift to him, and God is his source. Somewhere in your life, whether it's children, whether it's parents, whether it's a spouse, whether it's a gift or a talent or a dream or ambition, there may be something in your life that you're holding on to because you need that thing to provide you with a sense of your identity and of who you are and of your well-being. It is undoubtedly something God's given you. But out of your own insecurity, you have turned that into an idol. A good thing. A blessing from God. A gift from God. But it isn't who it's come from. 
it's what place it has in your heart. And this is something we may have to go through more than once in our life in different areas. God must be first. The difference that I feel now standing as a pastor of a church of this size and what I felt as the pastor of a church of about 100 people before is night and day. I have no doubt that God has called me here. Not because of my ambition, because I just know. And I don't, you know, I, I love you. I want you all to be, you know, enjoy what's happening. But if you all got up and walked out, I'd be very sad. I'd wonder what happened. But I'm going to stay here because I know God's, God's put me here. And that's your security. That's your security. Because if I allow this ministry or anything about it, the television, the radio, or any of that thing, if I allow that to become a place in my heart where I'm starting to draw my, well, and you know, people come up to me all the time, oh, I see you on TV all the time. I have to answer that in my mind. Say, thank you very much. I appreciate that. I'm glad that you're watching. But I have to answer that in my mind. This is a ministry. That's something God is using to reach people. That's not an indication of anything about me. What's your Isaac? What has God given you? Talent, gift, relationship, job, whatever it may be that means so much to you that you're drawing a little bit of your self-worth from that if it, you had to lay it down, it would threaten you. That's what Isaac, God was testing Isaac, uh, Abraham here. And Abraham had grown to the place where he could literally give back to God that precious... That's why I wanted to take it through you and show you this wasn't just something that happened at the last minute. 25 years of his faith, of his growing, of his frustration, of all these things, waiting and waiting and waiting, and now probably 20, 25 years of seeing this boy grow and mature, realizing he's the boy of the promise, everything's going to happen through him, and now God wants him back. Without hesitation... He was willing to put that most precious thing he had on the altar and say, God, whatever you want to do, I only want what you give me to do. I trust you first. My children put away idols from your life.